Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 42, The Shape of You, in which we uncover more details of how electrons move around atoms and molecules. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of this podcast can download a supplemental sheet with diagrams explaining some of the ideas I discuss in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. We have reached the 42nd episode of the history of chemistry. By now you may have noticed how different episodes turn to different branches of chemistry, how the different branches of chemistry specialize in different aspects of atoms and molecules, and how the branching even continues further, becoming more convoluted. What this shows is how deeply chemistry involves itself with atoms and molecules' behavior in a variety of ways, whether in the multitude of compounds of carbon, the variety of crystals of inorganic materials, the physical observations of how molecules react, and so forth. As we continue along our historical path, the branching will continue. For now, in this episode, we return again to the humble electron, the particle that drives the majority of chemical reactions. Heitler and London showed that the hydrogen molecule's structure can be calculated from first principles, plus some reasonable assumptions, which are required because you simply cannot plug in four separate particles into an equation and figure out their relative dynamics. Let's go back to the hydrogen atom. In previous episodes, I merely noted that there were various levels in which an electron could reside, depending on how much energy that electron has. Those levels are denoted by four quantum numbers. Knowing the quantum numbers tells you the energy level, And generally, the larger the quantum numbers are, the more energy the electron has. Recall also that electrons are both waves and particles. So, because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, we cannot say precisely where electrons are at any moment. We can only say that they are in a particular energy level somewhere near the nucleus of an atom. These energy levels, however, have a particular shape, or volume, because they are three-dimensional. By 1928, scientists were able to calculate the various shapes of the energy levels in a hydrogen atom based on quantum mechanics. I want to emphasize that these shapes do not have hard boundaries. Rather, they are generally described as probability volumes. That is, You have, say, a 90% probability of finding an electron within that volume, though it could be practically anywhere with only a small probability of being outside the described shape. These shapes depend on the secondary quantum number. Their orientation in space depends on the tertiary quantum number. The first shape is spherical. The lowest level, the primary quantum number, n equals 1 level, is merely a spherical blob around the nucleus. The likelihood of finding the electron, 
drops the further away from the nucleus you get. Spectroscopists originally gave the name to this shape as lowercase s because the energy level results in a sharp spectral line, not because the shape is round like a sphere. If you jack up the energy to the n equals 2 level, you still have a spherical probability blob for the electron, but will not be near the nucleus. That would be a no-no spot, a node where you cannot find the electron. If you change the secondary quantum number from 0 to 1, then you add another node to the probability volume. Now the blob looks more like a dumbbell, for the node is an entire plane. The electron can be on one side of the plane, or the other, but not at the plane. Which nodal plane, x, y, or z, depends on the third quantum number. Each of these dumbbell shapes is 90 degrees away from the others. So you can have three pairs of electrons in three dumbbell probability volumes. Spectroscopists originally gave the name to this shape as lowercase p, standing for principal line. Let's add more energy to the electron. We move up to n equals 3. For the secondary quantum number of 0, there are two nodes, one in the center of the atom at the nucleus, and one as a spherical shell away from the nucleus. Neither of these areas can hold the electron. But the outer shape still appears spherical. If we change the secondary quantum number to 1, Again, you get the nodal plane producing a dumbbell, or more accurately, three dumbbells depending on the plane you choose. But you add inside a nodal shell, in which the electron also cannot be. Change the secondary number to two, and now your nodal plane becomes more like a nodal cone. You see a volume with a dumbbell plus a ring. Spectroscopists originally gave the name to this shape as lowercase d, because the energy level results in a diffuse spectral line. As you keep adding energy to the electron, you get more and more nodal planes or shapes where the electron cannot exist. The resulting probability volumes get more and more convoluted and complicated looking. Think of these volumes as the three-dimensional analogy to all the vibrations that occur on a string or drumhead. These string or drum vibrations also have nodes, but on a line or plane. Here the nodes can be three-dimensional volumes. Why do we care about all these shapes? Chemists of the 20th century gradually began to realize that the shapes of the atomic orbitals affect chemical reactivity. And now you finally hear the word orbital. An orbit designates a classical Newtonian particle's particular path. But electrons are not classical particles. They have wave properties, so we cannot know exactly their positions. So the American scientist Robert Mulliken invented the word orbital to describe a one-electron probability volume. Linus Pauling was one of the first promoters of this idea in the 1930s. I mentioned in an earlier episode how Pauling showed how the tetrahedral carbon atom came to be. 
Now we can go into more detail as he did. Carbon has four electrons out of a potential total octet in its outer shell, the principal quantum number two shell. One of these four is the secondary quantum number zero level, the S level. Three of these electrons are in the secondary quantum number one level, the P level. They are not quite equivalent in energy, but they do interact with each other, mixing together. The final mixture is essentially four blobs pointing away from the carbon nucleus with tetrahedral angles away from each other. We can call this mixed-up grouping of four orbitals an sp3 orbital, with one s plus three p's. Then these four blobby probability volumes can interact nicely with the one s electrons in four hydrogen atoms to form single bonds, paired volumes, to each hydrogen. It explains methane and other hydrocarbons, and a whole slew of organic compounds' structures. This whole idea is called hybridization theory. Suppose you have a compound with a double bond. What then? Pauling explained ethylene, C2H4, this way. Use two p-orbital electrons and the s-electron on each carbon. These three orbitals on each carbon hybridize, mix together, to make three blobby volumes pointing out from each carbon in a plane. We call this an sp2 hybrid orbital. One of the blobs on each carbon meets the other blob on the other carbon to form a single bond. The two leftover blobs point out at 120 degrees from each carbon and can mate and mix with four hydrogen 1s electrons. We still have one p electron left over on each carbon. We choose the p orbital sticking above and below the plane on each carbon, and these two matching p orbitals meet each other and hybridize together, forming the second part of the double bond between the carbons. What about benzene? Pauling used hybridization theory again. Make a ring of six carbons with six hydrogen atoms sticking out from the sp2 hybridized orbitals. With the leftover p orbitals on each carbon sticking out above and below the ring's plane, all the orbitals match up and hybridize together, making another hybrid orbital above and below the hexagonal ring. No flipping back and forth between Kekulé's resonating structures is needed. Likewise, a variety of unusual molecular structures can be understood merely by hybridization theory, including B2H6, free radicals, and so on. As you move down the periodic table to where more metals reside in the middle, you start to access valence electrons with higher energy orbitals using the more complicated probability volumes. These convoluted orbitals also can interact and mix, allowing us to understand inorganic chemical bonding. The whole shebang is called valence bond theory. Suddenly, quantum theory had a real practical value for chemists. Linus Pauling himself was a brilliant and unusual guy. For his understanding of hybridization in orbitals and their importance in the world of chemistry, he won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1954. Many science historians rank him as one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. Then, because of the Cold War between the USA and Soviet Union, 
and worries over nuclear bombs, he became a peace activist and won the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1962. By the late 1960s, he began to think that vitamins, which are biochemical molecules required for nutrition, might have other medical value, especially vitamin C. He promoted the ideas that vitamin C could prevent cancer and the common cold, a viral disease. Unfortunately, there is little to no evidence that either of those ideas is valid nearly three decades after his death. Even with no experimental evidence to support it, there is a widespread view to this day that vitamin C has such effects on disease, and Pauling became to be regarded as a crackpot for his views toward the end of his life. Simultaneously with Pauling's hybridization theory, another method for describing how electrons readjust themselves around molecules appeared. Four scientists had a hand in developing this other approach. German physicist Friedrich Hund, Robert Mulliken, the coiner of the term orbital, American physicist John Slater, and English mathematician John Leonard Jones. In their method, you first assume that atoms are modeled with a weighted sum of all the atomic orbitals surrounding them. Then you combine those weighted sums together to get the molecular orbitals for a particular molecule you are modeling. Requirements of this method include that the atomic orbitals have to be close enough physically to combine into what's called a molecular orbital, and that the combining atomic orbitals have to be similar in energy levels. The whole scheme is called molecular orbital theory and was pretty complete by around 1933. How does this work? Because we are dealing with electron energy levels, we have to consider if a proposed bond between atoms has a lower energy level, that is, more stable, than the atoms remaining to themselves. For the hydrogen molecule, H2, we consider two 1s spherical orbitals. They combine to form a bonding molecular orbital shaped like a cigar with the two hydrogen nuclei near each end of the cigar. The electron pair fills this new cigar-shaped orbital volume, and we call it a sigma bond. There is also a possible antibonding orbital at a higher energy level than the two separate hydrogen atoms. It has a planar node, a plane between the two atoms, in which the electron pair can never exist. Normally, electrons don't move up into this level and remain in the bonding orbital. But you can imagine zapping the H2 molecule with light with the right energy to shift one or both electrons up to this anti-bonding orbital. The electrons would make a quantum jump up, the anti-bonding orbital is unstable, and the molecule may fall apart. This is where bonding and chemical affinity again come into play in the quantum world. We can also talk about how methane is formed from sigma bonds between the sp3 electrons on the carbon and the s electrons on the four hydrogens. We also need to take into account the corresponding antibonding orbitals less stable. 
if we want to consider double bonds between carbon atoms, we again invoke the sp2 hybridization idea like Pauling, but connect each carbon to its two hydrogens with sigma bonds, and the two carbons with a sigma bond. The p orbital on each carbon sticks up and down like in Pauling's method, but now we calculate how they interact and merge together, making a pair of banana-like structures above and below the molecule's plane. This pair of banana probability volumes is called a pi bond. The sigma bond plus the pi bond together are a double bond. For a benzene ring, those six p orbitals sticking above and below the ring all merge together into a donut sandwich. One donut is on top of the ring, and one donut is underneath the benzene ring. This probability volume is also called a pi bond. Because the molecular orbital theory really requires a lot of computational power, it didn't gain much traction until the programmable computer was invented in the 1940s, and computing power and memory began ramping up in the 1960s. Valence bond theory is more intuitive. In most cases, Pauling's valence bond method and molecular orbital theory give equivalent answers for molecular structures. However, molecular orbital theory tends to consider electrons as more smeared out over entire molecules, and so, on occasion, gives more accurate models for molecules. One example is the common and well-known molecule oxygen, or O2. If you draw out a Lewis structure for O2, you get a double bond between the two oxygen atoms in order for each oxygen to gain an octet of electrons. Likewise, valence bond theory will create hybridized orbitals giving a double bond between the oxygen atoms. Molecular orbital theory, though, predicts two unpaired electrons in an antibonding orbital, which we know has a planar node between the two oxygens, disallowing the electrons to stay in the middle. So how do we resolve the contradictory answers given by the models? Experimentation shows that liquid oxygen, extremely cold, is attracted to magnets, showing the presence of unpaired electrons. Therefore, molecular orbital theory wins the day here. Careful study of atomic orbitals in elements and molecular orbitals in molecules reveals how substances have color, how they interact with magnets, and have a host of other properties that become important in a variety of chemicals, both theoretical and commercial. Perhaps we will be able to explore the history of this in future episodes. But, at this point in our chemical history, it is the 1930s, when chemists finally realize, in theory, how electrons in atoms readjust themselves when they encounter other electrons around other atoms. And this generates most of the chemistry we know and love. Theoretically, in the 1930s, Scientists solved the underlying question of what is chemical affinity. I say in theory because doing actual molecular orbital calculations has been well beyond the computing power of electronic computers for much of modern history. Even relatively simple molecules take vast amounts of computer time. 
I should note that there are some approximations that programmers make to simplify the calculations. These are often called semi-empirical methods, taking shortcuts and hoping the results won't be too crazy or off-kilter. Usually they work fairly well, but sometimes not. For example, you might only involve pi orbital electrons in your model, or maybe you match your structure to other known molecular structures, or you match other parameters such as the amount of energy to pull an electron off of a molecule to a set of known values. In our next episode, we shall continue with isotopes and elements, including artificial elements. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.